great to uh, talk about theological concepts and things that the Bible teaches us about the character of God and to reflect upon those things for our own understanding. And I want to do some more of that tonight as we open the Word of God together. So you take your Bibles and open them with me to our study of Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. Tonight will be uh, somewhat uh, expository preaching, somewhat theological uh, class at uh, uh, in a seminary or something like that. We're going to look through some of these kinds of theological concepts and try to understand exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying to the believers in Galatia in chapter 3 as we return to verses 19 through 29. Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 29. I'll just read that for us and then we can open in a word of prayer. The Apostle Paul says, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can be here tonight and we can open your word and that you will, through your spirit, help us to understand what it means by what it says that we might know you more. And so we pray that you would accomplish all that you have set forth to do in us and for us by your word. We know that it will not return void. Use this time for your glory and our good, all to the glory and honor of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. There's a word that the Apostle Paul uses often when he is speaking about this kind of subject matter, and that is the word that he loves. It is the word justified. The word justified. In fact, he uses this words several times in the final sentences of this portion of his letter to the Galatian believers because 
it is the subject of what he desires for them to understand. The idea of justification. Justification or declared righteousness. Paul says, beginning in verse 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for you are all for all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ, so there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, male or female, you're all one in Christ Jesus, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, you are heirs according to promise. All of that speaks to the reality that is enveloped in justification. The law of God clearly, as Paul says, brings us to Christ. The necessity of the reality of the law of God is that reality. The law of God brings us to Jesus Christ so that we might be justified by faith. In fact, you might remember back in chapter 2 and verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. This is Paul's theme throughout the whole letter. Justified, 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 justified. How is someone justified before God? This whole idea of justification. In chapter 3, in verse 6, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Righteousness is the same word in the original language as is translated in other places in this letter as justified or justification. So God imputes righteousness, that's what justification is, God imputes righteousness by faith, God imputed to Abraham righteousness. Chapter 3 and verse 11 now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Let me read that a different way. I'll transpose the words that are there in our English translation with their opposites. Now that no one is righteous by the law before God is evident, for the justified man shall live by faith. The same thing. It's the same way. Righteousness and justification in both the New Testament Greek original language and the translations from the Old Testament in the Greek, the Septuagint, mean the same thing. The root words are translated the same way. Righteousness and justification. In fact, in the Hebrew, the word is sedek. Sedek. Uh, if you want me to write that out for you with English letters, it's T S E D E Q. Sedek. 
It means to be declared righteous. That's what it means in the Hebrew language, to be declared righteous or to be justified. And so Paul quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which says, Abraham believed God and his faith was counted for Sedeka, that's the Hebrew word, Sedeka, for righteousness or for justification. If we were to translate that into the Greek language or use the Greek word for that, the word is dikaios. It can be translated to either be just or righteous. When we were studying the gospel, Early on, even in the Gospel of Luke, we saw that Joseph was a righteous man, it said. Joseph was a righteous man. The word there is dikaios. He, he was a justified man. Matthew 5, 45 says that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. God says rain on the dikaios and the adikas, the just and those who are not just. And so this word is used in a whole lot of places when we look at the New Testament, and sometimes it is translated as just, and other times it's translated as righteous, but it is the same word. So if we were thinking in the noun sense, a person, place, or thing, just or righteous is the same translated word. When it becomes a word of action, or when it becomes a verb, or it's used in a verbal way in communication, then it means the act of declaring, to declare someone, or to treat someone as righteous, or to treat them as just. In other words, to hold someone guiltless. That's the idea. When we think of justification, when we think of righteousness in Scripture as an action, it is to hold someone guiltless. We get an example of this in Luke chapter 18. I want us to go there for a moment. Luke chapter 18. It seems like I, I find myself continually returning back to Luke the more I study the other books of the Bible as there's so many illustrations that are given to us in the gospel. Luke chapter 18, there is an example of this idea of justification being declared about a person, being someone being held guiltless in the account of the publican and the Pharisee parable that Jesus tells beginning in verse 9. Jesus told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were adikas, that they were justified, that they were righteous. They they held themselves in this way. They trusted in themselves to hold themselves guiltless before God. And they viewed others in a way that was with contempt. Jesus tells this parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. One a very religious man. One in the eyes of the people, someone who would be just before God. The other one a tax gatherer, someone who's the lowest of lows, a traitor of the Jews who would never have been considered anyone righteous at all. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus, notice, not to God, but praying thus to himself. God, why he 
addressed his prayer in that way, since he's praying to himself, is still an irony to me. As I think about it, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. Here's my works. Here's my outer activities. Here's who I am in comparison to everybody else around me. I'm justified. They're not justified. In fact, they're even unjust. He even uses that term. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He doesn't even include himself in a group of sinners. He says, I am the sinner. I'm the chief of them all. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house to chaos, justified, righteous. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The one who said he was not of the unjust people actually went away as someone who was declared unjust, and this one who was considered to be unjust before God was declared by God to be just. In other words, he was declared righteous. He was held guiltless before God. This is the same idea that Paul states in Romans chapter 6 in verse 30 when he talks about the justified. And he says that God call, those whom God calls, he also justifies. He decaoses them. He acquits them. So those whom God calls to himself, those also God acquits of their guilt before him. He does not hold them guilty. They have been declared just. They are justified. They are righteous. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 and verse 25. We hear similar Frain from the Apostle Paul. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised, notice, because of our justification. We don't oftentimes think of the resurrection like that. We don't oftentimes think of Jesus Christ in that kind of way, being delivered up because of our transgressions. We understand that reality of it. We understand that Jesus Christ paid for our sins. He was delivered up because of our sins. But we don't often think of the other side of it, that he was raised from the dead. Why? Because of our justification. He was raised from the dead because God declared us who believe in Jesus Christ righteous before him. Right here, the words of the Apostle Paul is double imputation. I didn't say amputation. I said imputation, right? Christ was delivered because of our sin and was raised because of our acquittal, because of our being justified. Double imputation. Our sin was imputed to Christ. His righteousness was imputed to us. Thereby, we could be declared righteous. Chapter 5 and verse 18 of Romans. 
So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. You say, Pastor, why in the world did you have us look at that and think through that as we're looking at Galatians? Simply for this reason, so that we have an understanding that the word righteousness and the word justification mean the same thing. Righteousness and justification mean the same thing. In other words, to be declared righteous is the same as being justified. To be justified is the same as not being guilty. And justification, we understand, is that judicial act of God whereby God the Father, now get this, whereby God the Father for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of Jesus Christ, raised Jesus, for the sake of Jesus Christ, looks upon us who believe, and He declares us righteous, declares us to be justified as those who are being without spot or blemish before Him for the sake of Christ. In other words, in the sight of God, you and I who believe in Jesus Christ have been made holy and pure. God has justified us. God has declared us righteous. He has granted us permanent acquittal for the sake of Christ. That is simply to say... If God did not justify those who believe in Christ, then Christ's death meant nothing. Then God was never satisfied with Christ, and therefore Christ was never God at all. So just so we understand, justification is not in any way something that we can add to or something that we can do. Justification is something that only God does. God looks upon actual sinners. Even though we still sin. Even though here we are on this earth before glorification and we still sin, we still live in these sinfulness. God, even though we sin, we are not under the condemnation of God. This is why the Apostle Paul could say, therefore there is now no condemnation. Romans 8.1 For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. Why? Because for the sake of Christ, God has justified you. God has declared you righteous. There is no condemnation because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Go over to Galatians chapter 3, because this is so important in the mind of the Apostle Paul, that when we believe, when we believe we are 
intimately and vitally and legally and positionally joined with Jesus Christ. We are so linked with Christ that God sees us through the righteousness of Christ. We have His righteousness and we are therefore baptized into Christ and we are made part of His body and all of that is because God has declared us righteous. We have been acquitted of all the penalty and condemnation that was due our sinfulness. This is, the, this is the reality that the Apostle Paul is trying to help the Galatian believers see. He's trying to help them understand that this union with Christ holds all the truths they need for life and for godliness. In fact, this is what is so incredible about what the Apostle Paul has been saying in chapter 3 about the law. He says the law was given in verse 19, the law was given in order to expose sin. That's what verse 19 declares. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Not because transgressions were becoming more and more and more, and God said, oh, i got to do something about transgressions. No, it was added so that we might understand transgressions, so that we might see ourselves for who we really are, so that our sin would be exposed. The law doesn't stop sin. The law simply exposes it by the righteous nature of its inherent quality. It is the law of God. It is the law, by means of exposing our sin, that drives us to the promise of God. The law is there because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Jesus Christ is the promised seed of Abraham. And so by means of the law, our sin is exposed, opening our eyes to a need for a Savior. By means of what God has given through His perfect law, we see sin for what sin is, and we realize that it is our sins, and it is exposed, and we realize we need something to deal with this. Therefore, because of the law, we understand that Jesus Christ is central to the solution. He is central to the gospel. This is why I've entitled this last several messages in Galatians by this very title, The Necessity for God's Law, because God's law exposes sin and God's law drives us to the place of mercy and forgiveness, who is Jesus Christ. Right? All of us understand that we do not need Christ if we can justify ourselves. We do not need someone outside helping us in our justification if we have some ability inherently within us to justify ourselves. So if the law cannot justify us, then 
is it not contrary to God's promise to save us? If the law can't justify us and the law was given to us and the law exposes sin and the law can't save us, then doesn't that mean it's contrary to the very promises of God? And we saw last time, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was bringing up, beginning in verse 21. Right, first, he says, the law is not contrary to the promise of God because of its inherent difference. Its intent is different. The law's intent was never to give life. The promise's intent is always to give life. It says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. Why? Because if the law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness, adikas, or dikaias, would need have been based on law, or justification would need have been based on law, right? If the law had been given that was able to give life or give justification, then justification would indeed be based on law. But the law cannot produce life. That is not the intent of the law. If it could, then the promise, Jesus Christ, would not be necessary. The very fact that God himself, through his gracious mercy and plan of redemption, gave the promise shows the very opposite fact that the law cannot produce life. God would never have given a promise had the intent of the law been to be life-giving. And yet, that is what the legalist tries to say. This is why we must not be confused about legalism. I hear this term thrown around from time to time within Christian circles when someone says, this is what the Bible says we must be like as Christians. In other words, as if the, the Bible, once we're saved because we're in the realm of grace, because we stand in grace, as Paul said to Timothy, we think that there's no reason for the command. No one can say, thou shalt do this, because after all, I live in grace. Yet that's not true. It's just the reality of how the law is used, right? The law exposes sin. The law does one of two things. It exposes your guilt. It exposes your sin, and it condemns you. And yet, when you're in Christ, there's a need for the law to show you how to live rightly, and you can do it in Christ. The law cannot produce life. The legalist tries to say that the way to gain righteousness, to gain justification before God, is I do things in order to gain my justification. Thou shalt do this, thou shalt do this, thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do this, not this, not this. In order to gain righteousness, that's legalism. But as a Christian, that's not legalism. As a true Christian, that's called the process of sanctification by which the commands of God are things that call into our life what we ought to be doing in order to honor and please God, and we have been equipped through Jesus Christ to be able to walk in these things. A performance-based approach to Christianity is very popular today. There are still some who base their righteousness, their justification, just like the Pharisee in Luke. They base it on their own personal religious activity. But the law cannot give life. It never could. 
It was never intended by God to impart life. The only thing that the law can actively do, it cannot actively impart life, the only thing it can actively do is curse. And passively, if the law isn't cursing, passively it cannot give life. Passively it cannot it, it cannot curse. That's all it can do. It can sit back and either curse or not curse. There's only one. And only those who keep the whole law will not be cursed. And there's only one who has kept the whole law. No one has kept the law except Jesus Christ. So, there is no problem with the law. The problem is with us, the sinner. We break the law by our very nature. Therefore, no one is justified by the works of the law. That's why Paul keeps saying that, because the Galatians are under this constant false teaching from the Judaizers who have come in. It says you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. You have to go through this religious ritual in order to be saved. Paul is saying, no, there's no way you can be justified by that. So there's no problem with the law. The problem was with us. So why is the law not contrary to the promise? Because it has a different intent. It has a different intent. Secondly, because the, like the promise, the law protects us. The law protects us. We looked at this last time. This was just review for us. Verse 22 says, But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So when Paul says, but the Scripture, he means the law of God. He means all that God has said, all that God has revealed to us, all the Scriptures is God's perfect law. So the Scriptures have have shut up all men under sin. The Scriptures come in, like Hebrews tells us, like a sharp sword dividing down to the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and all hearts have come up short. We, We have fallen short of the grace of God, as Romans said. We have knowledge, we have conviction about our sin And that knowledge and conviction about our sins, beloved, we have to see as a protection for us. The Word of God that has been given to us from God about us and about Christ rightfully shuts us in. I told us last time a good word for that is, is it imprisons us. We, the sinner, are imprisoned by the law. I called it the guilt prison. We are in the prison of guilt. We know the law. We break the law. We know our sense of guilt for breaking the law. And nothing we do allows us to escape that guilt of pri- that prison guilt. We're locked in it. We are imprisoned by the law in our guilt. And that is God's intent with the law. In order that, through that, we are protected by showing our accountability before Him. It's a protection from God. Why? Because guilt drives us to seek a way out of guilt prison. That's what it does. The foolishness of men tries to find its own way out of guilt prison. And men try to tunnel under it and dig through it and and go through all kinds of 
religious genuflecting and exercises and try to get out of guilt prison and it never works. It's just another way, another stack of guilt upon them. They never get out. It only leads to a longer sentence for them. And so in driving us to despair, the law of God is protecting us from not knowing what we need to know about us. It's our, as Paul said, our tutor. We said last time that word is that child protector. It's it's taking them to the master. That's what the law does. It's protecting us from not knowing that we cannot gain freedom on our own. So while the law has no power to grant us life, the law has no power to unlock the prison door and let us out. It cannot free us from guilt prison. The law helps us to look to the Savior who can. Rather than being contrary to the promise, it actually works in concert with the promise. The law imprisons us so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And when we believe, we are freed from guilt prison. The door is unlocked. We walk out free. Notice chapter 5 of Galatians. Paul even says it this way. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. We've been set free. Not by the law. We've been set free by Christ. What is the promise? It is righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the key. Justification before God through belief in His Son. Therefore, our justification is rooted in our unity with Christ. Let me say it a different way. There is no justification for anyone if they are not united with Jesus Christ. Notice verses 26 through the end of chapter 3. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. If you are united to Christ. By faith in Christ, having been baptized into Christ, you are united with Christ. You are unified with Christ. In the mind of God, God sees you in Christ. If you are united with Christ, having been justified by God's declaration for the sake of Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are heirs according to promise. You cannot get out of that. I want us to notice here, just in these final verses, verses 26 and following, that there is a unity with Jesus Christ that is explained for us here by three other relationships. There is our relationship divinely in verses 26 and 27. 
There is our relationship societally or socially, I should say, socially in verse 28. And there is our relationship historically in verse 29. So our relationship divinely, our relationship socially, and our relationship historically. So when it comes to our unity with Jesus Christ by faith, the first place that we see that we see this unity with Christ is in our relationship with God. In other words, our relationship divinely seen. Divinely seen. Paul says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is a vital union with Christ. This is a legal union with Christ. It is a legal declaration by God for our justification. It is a legal union by means of faith in Christ, which brings us into the reality of being sons of God. That is simply to say that if we know Jesus Christ, then we also know who we are. Why? Because we know to whom we belong. For you are all sons of God. We are sons of God. This is the, this is the pinnacle. This is the apex of Paul's argument against the thinking that somehow you can gain sonship with God. That's part of the implication of justification. Part of the implication of being right in the eyes of God and being righteous, that you that you gain sonship through some personal religious activity. Paul is Paul is laying that totally as a false idea with this one sentence. He's saying no one earns sonship into the family of God through any other means. We are sons, not because of law, not because of what we do. We earn sonship because the law has led us to Christ. It is in Christ. And because we're in Christ, through faith in Christ, we have the full privileges of being sons and daughters of God. Not because somehow we've prayed enough, given enough, read enough, or done anything else enough. And by the way, notice that no true Christian is left out of this reality. For you are, notice, all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That is the only way to become a son of God, is through faith in Christ Jesus. The emphasis here is on the word all. Every person who has believed upon Jesus Christ by faith is a child of God. If there's anything more assuring than that, you ought to just memorize verse 26, implant it in your heart, rest upon it, know it to be true, and walk by faith in Jesus Christ. That will assure your hearts of your salvation. We all have a new heavenly Father. A heavenly Father who, by the way, loves us. A new heavenly Father who desires the best for us. And therefore, as our new heavenly Father, as our Father, He refuses to let us go our own way. And so, at times, 
we are not under condemnation, but we certainly at times will be under discipline because our loving Father desires for us to be conformed to the image of the one in whom we have faith, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12, verse 7, says it this way. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? So as children of God, we are no longer under condemnation because we're justified. We've been declared righteous. We're not under condemnation. We are full heirs with Christ, which Paul is going to get into in chapter 4. We are full heirs with Jesus Christ, all because we are united with Christ. So how then does this unity with Christ come about? How does it come about? Verse 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Those who come to Christ and believe are supernaturally baptized into Christ. And therefore, we are clothed with Christ. Paul's not talking about water baptism here. There's no no water in this passage It's not what he's talking about, even though the implication here is the same as water baptism. There isn't a full immersion. We are are in Christ. This is the, the transactional reality of salvation. God sees us in Christ. We are in Christ. There is this union with Christ. We cannot be saved and be separate from Christ. We are baptized into Christ. That's what happens by faith internally. We are baptized into Christ. We are unified with Christ. And being unified with Christ means that we are so connected with everything that Christ ever did for our salvation that all of that is ours. The Apostle Paul clearly says this in the book of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that He, or that we, should be holy and blameless before Him. What a gracious act of God. That God, before the foundation of the world, chose us in Christ so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He knew all of that ahead of time, and yet He chose us anyway in order that we would be holy and blameless. We couldn't do it ourselves, but God chose us so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. So in love, He predestined us to adoption as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ to Himself. What was that by? It was according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us. How? In the Beloved, in Christ. And in Christ, we have redemption through His blood. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace, which He lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Christ 
with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. And so in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. When did he predestine us? Before the foundation of the world, it said in verse 3. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. All to the end, in verse 12, that we who were first to hope in Christ should be the praise of his glory. This is the point that Paul is saying to the Galatian believers. You are baptized into Christ. There is a unity that is in Christ. This is why Paul can say, we have been clothed with Christ. An old cultural saying of years past that said this, the clothes make the man. The clothes make the man. If that's true, then it is no more true than for us as Christians. If the clothes make the man, then as Christians it's true because Jesus Christ is our garment of righteousness. If, if the clothes make us, then, then what makes us anything is Jesus Christ. We are clothed with Christ. So first, if we are of faith in Christ, then we have a relationship that's divinely wrought. We are sons and daughters of God. Secondly, secondly, we have a new social relationship through unity with Christ. Notice verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. You go, what in the world is Paul saying? Well, he's saying that through our unity with Christ, we have a new family relationship in that everyone who belongs to God through faith in Christ belongs to everyone else who belongs to God through faith in Christ. In other words, everyone who knows Christ by faith are brothers and sisters of one another who know Christ by faith. No one is excluded. That is simply to say, brothers and sisters, we say this all the time, and you even hear me use those words, brothers and sisters, that when we look around this room and those who are of faith in Jesus Christ in this room are of our true family. We are the family of God. And our new Christian family, therefore, then transcends and transforms any kind of social connection we've ever had before. In other words, our, our relationship and our union with Jesus Christ establishes for us, a new and better communion with others who are in Christ than any communion we've had with anybody else who does not know Christ. This is our real family. And therefore, the very things we see, even today, as you look out at the culture and you see all of these things dividing the society and dividing the culture that are going on, even in our news today, 
All of these things that divide families and divide cultures today should not and cannot be allowed to divide the family of God. What do we see today? We see in society, the world is divided by what? Race? By sexual gender issues? And by social ranking? That's what divides our nation. That's what divides the world right now. All of those things are the top of the headlines. And Paul says, notice, notice what Paul says here. There is neither Jew or Greek. Guess what that is? Social ranking. There's none of that considered to be valid anywhere in God's family. There is no social ranking. There is neither slave nor free. What is that? Race issues. And there is neither male nor female. Gender identities, there's, there's none of that class distinction, hierarchy going on. All of that is worldly thinking. That's how pagans live. God's not saying there isn't distinctions within His body. There's distinctions within the people of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We aren't confused as to the reality of who we are by way of God making us who we are. We understand all of that, but we don't use any of that to divide anything. We have a unity in Christ. This is one of the sad things about CRT, the critical race theory, and all of this nonsense about seeing through Scripture and using it as an analytical tool in order to understand Scriptures, the one thing people have forgotten is the unity in Christ. We're unified in Christ. We're not unified by skin color. We're not unified by economic status. We're not unified by gender realities. We are unified in Christ. And while there certainly may be distinctions and there certainly are differences among and within all of those categories, none of those define us, none of those should divide us. All of those tensions are overcome in Christ. Why? Because we are one in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul says. You don't have to be separated. Why? Because you're all one in Christ Jesus, verse 28. So if we divide, then we have forgotten who it is we are unified with. All that's dividing under the banner of social justice today, even within evangelicalism, is a bunch of nonsense. What it means is we've forgotten who we are united with. We're united with Christ. So our relationship with God is new. Our relationship with each other is new. And lastly, the Apostle Paul says, our relationship historically is different. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, your heirs according to promise. If you are of Christ, what does that mean? If you are of Christ, that's what he says here. That's really the, the, the rendering in the original, if you are of Christ. We have it in our Bibles, if you belong to Christ. What does of Christ mean? It means the same thing as being in Christ. All right? If you are in Christ, then you are also of Christ. When we are of Christ, we belong to Christ. That's why the New American Standard Bible translated it that way. We belong to Christ. We are His property. 
To belong to Christ means that we belong to one another. And belonging to Christ means that we are offspring of Abraham. In other words, because we are of Christ, we are also of the promise made to Abraham. What was the promise to Abraham? That his seed would be blessed. Who's the seed of Abraham? None other than Jesus Christ. Verse 16 of chapter 3. Now the promise were spoken to, promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. So if we're in Christ, we're in the promise. If we're in the promise, we're justified. We're justified, we're righteous. We're righteous, we're sons of God. If we're righteous and justified in Christ, clothed in Christ, baptized into Christ, then we are brothers and sisters of one another. There's nothing that should divide us. And if we belong to Christ, then we are in the promise. We are God's offspring. We are sons of Abraham. Therefore, without unity in Christ, which only comes through faith in Christ, there is no real salvation. That's Paul's point. Paul's point is to the Galatians, listen, if you're not unified with Christ already, then you're not saved. Because you can't get there any other way other than faith in Jesus Christ. The only way to be identified as a child of God is to be in Christ. Those who are in Christ know exactly who they are. They are sons of God. They know who their father is. They know who their true family is. It's their brothers and sisters who know God by faith. They all are children of God, and they know they are secure in the promise of God. If we are in Christ, beloved, we are the offspring of God. And the law of God opens our eyes to all of that. Opens our eyes to all of that. And then in chapter 4, Paul says this, and I'll just read it and then we'll close in prayer. Now I say, and we'll cover this all next time, as long as the heir is a child, he doesn't differ from a slave. Although he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians, he's under managers until the date set by the father. And so also we, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word again. We thank You that we could just look into this great and wonderful truth of justification Righteousness granted to those who believe for the sake of Jesus Christ. 
And that all that comes with that unity with Jesus Christ, our relationship with you, that we are your sons, our relationship with one another, knowing that we are brothers and sisters together in Christ, that nothing ought to separate us in that unity. And that we are children of the promise because Christ is the fulfiller of the promise. Thank you that you are the only one that can make us righteous. And thank you that in Jesus Christ, by faith, we have been declared not guilty. May you be praised in our words and our deeds and our life and in this church. In Christ's name, amen.